First, I want to thank everyone for 30 years of support of this group. I know all of you have been coming for all 30 years. So. But I realize I would not be here, as Tara was saying, I would not be here if it wasn't for the generosity of those who have supported me. And, and when you offer support, you actually offer to the next group and to the so this is how it goes, and 30 years from now, maybe I'll be thanking the group for 60 years of support, <laughs> even though uh, obviously many of you will not be in the building, but, but it's, it goes like that. It, it, the teachings are carried on a river of, of generosity, and uh, it's just it's a wonderful river to be flowing along, and I hope it continues. It's, a, it's very rare in this world that anything operates on the economy of giving. You know, everything is mostly fee-for-service and what's something worth. And uh, so it's very rare to have some, uh, a system of mutual generosity and that gladdens the heart and uh, that creates not just a momentary relationship of of a transaction, but as an ongoing relationship, this river that I speak about. So, so thank you for being part of that river. I thought tonight, even though I have so many things that I, being the exuberant type, there are so many things I would want to say, and the reason I do this is because I have so much love for the, the Dharma, so much confidence in the teachings because they've, I've benefited, I've seen the teachings and the practice benefit so many, but I thought I would start tonight before I just launched into a Dharma talk with a, we'll call it the, the um, part of the evening, we'll call it uh, Ask Me Anything. Uh, the Tuesday night free-for-all. But I, I don't mean ask me anything that feels alive for you. Ask me anything about your meditation practice, about the teachings, hopefully not too theoretical, uh, but if something theoretical drops in, that's okay too, but I don't want to put too many conditions on it. Ask me anything. Do you have any questions about your practice or about the teachings, something that's alive for you, confusing, anything that you might uh, uh, want me to speak about? Elaborate, please, Tanya. Um, I will repeat the question once I hear it, please. It's a very simple question. Um, if someone asks me this question, could I ask you what compassion is? Very simply, what is compassion? What is compassion? And are you interested in that question, what compassion is? <laughs> See, I'm interested in how you would translate that. I'd love to hear what you said, and I think others would too. True awareness and acceptance and an awareness 
of where someone is, some, either you or someone is. A curiosity, an, an inquiry, did you say? An astuteness of understanding. Yes, now, now what, you're, what I hear you describing is, and being, therefore being loving. Yeah, I d- would describe that as a, a kind of loving presence or a resonance. But compassion is, that, um, is the, the response of the heart when what you're resonating with is, uh, is related to something painful and difficult, some kind of mental or physical suffering or something that, that is hard to, hard to bear. And the, the response of the, the joining with that person in that, with that experience of pain, where, where it's no longer, oh, oh, poor them. It's not, it's what would be compassion's near enemy called pity, but more just a sense of, yes, that's really painful, and I, can, I really feel that with you. And it's sometimes called the quivering of the heart. It's, the, it's what happens to a heart when it meets pain, and it's open and resonating, like you say. Now, when, when our heart meets joy, somebody who's in a state of, of good fortune, if our heart is open, then we feel that we feel our heart rejoice. We feel what's called uh, sympathetic joy, and that would... And when it meets, uh, when it meets just um, anyone, as you say, with that kind of resonance, it would be synonymous with love. So, but when love meets pain, it turns, it expresses itself as compassion. Noemi. <laughs> Since I brought up sympathetic joy, yes. I'm trying to work with that because I see a lot of people rejoice and I'm just wondering if somebody doesn't enjoy that somebody else's strength, how could you have joy? If somebody is having joy at somebody else's expense, how can you have joy for them? That would not be a um, that would not be a cause for joy. That would be cause for ideally that would be cause for uh, compassion because you see how disconnected that is from love. When you see somebody experiencing joy at somebody's expense, that's that's could be cruelty. It could be any any number of things. Or just, yeah. Could you be more specific about something that you've seen so that it's not so vague? Look around. Okay, what will I see if I look around the neighborhood? People walking around with a lot of money. Going about their fun. Knowing that that's at the expense of other people. People who have been displaced. Um, for instance, 
friend of mine saw um, there with that fire. Yes, we 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 um, put out a message last week. Right next door to where the fire was that displaced many people, there's a, a fancy new development. Yes, there was a next to the people who were collecting their belongings. There was valet service. So, how do we accommodate the people who are experiencing good fortune right in the midst of people who are suffering? Sometimes, sometimes it's 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 not it's not always true that that person who's in joy is doing is experiencing that at the expense of someone else. That it's sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's not. And it's very easy to, to make a more global conflating of those two. And it's sometimes true and sometimes not. So just first thing as I would consider, uh, I would look at each thing and then have, keep widening your view to see that both are part of, our, part of our universe. And the fact that people can be oblivious, possibly oblivious, in the face of other people without anything... Hopefully that becomes the cause of our, our compassion for that, that recognizing our own tendency to compartmentalize, to, uh, to be oblivious to what's going on around us, and, and hopefully everything becomes the cause of our compassion. And if we can, though, also to, um, because many people are not experiencing joy at the expense of others, to be able to join with them and to, to wish that their happiness uh, continues, it increases, and it never wanes. <laughs> it's a tough, it's a, that's a tough question. It's a tough challenge because this is what's happening in this neighborhood. There is a change, and it will happen whether we like it or not. And our suffering will, our suffering will, to a certain degree, depend on. Uh, it will depend on our acceptance. And it doesn't mean that we don't actively try to, to awaken the consciousness of everyone. I, we do it, try to do it every week, but the train has left the station. It's the it's the way of the world. Yeah. So how can we how can we live with that truth? And that's the teachings are all about living in harmony with the truth. It doesn't mean you don't try to heal where there things are broken, but in order to do that and do it effectively, you have to first see it clearly. And to have it see it clearly, there has to be some measure accept, of acceptance that this is how it is right now. So how do we do it? Say that once wealth more. Wealth doesn't equal joy. Wealth does, yeah, wealth does not equal joy, right. 
Thank you for saying that. Yes, wealth does not equal real good fortune. Thank you. Thank you. Vance? Thank you for confessing your delusions. So you had some question about the fact that you were taking pleasure in someone else's loss. Yes. Yes. And finding yourself quite justified. Well, well, I would I would suggest that it, it that it is a um, it is a what might be called an e- an egoic view. It's a view from the perspective of what I want to happen. So it's very narrow. What I want to have happen makes gets supported by things turning out the way I want them to. Sometimes that view, though, become, our view becomes very narrow and doesn't really take into consideration the humanity of, of the, the different people on the different sides and it, it, turn, it usually is the case that the wider our view of a situation, the less dependent we are on how things turn out. The more there is a, an understanding that, yeah, there are winners and losers, but we're we, we just not as, as attached to it. So it's, it's natural to want your team to win, but it, you don't want your whole identity to get bound up in it. And when it does, we were, if, they had, if, they had, if that team had won, then you would have had to experience the, the sense of, of your loss. And it, it's just a, it's a big game. And you can have fun with it, and it's great that you are aware of it. And I think it's also useful to question the fact that you would take delight in someone else's loss, that question the, the, uh, the heart of that, whether it's really skillful or not, or wholesome. But... It's just a game. <laughs> Please. Well, Yes, there's a tension between accepting things as they are and then doing something about oppression or the many painful things that are... 
When we talk about accepting things as they are, it's mostly about seeing the situation with clear perception. If we're seeing from from an experience of aversion and from reactivity, it's really hard to... It's hard to act skillfully. It's hard to see clearly what's going on. So acceptance means, oh, this is how it is. I'm not resisting this truth right now. I can take in this truth. Now, what needs to be done about it? And of course, if your heart is is broken by seeing oppression, it will naturally lead to some kind of, of uh, compassionate response, some kind of action. Acceptance of how things are uh, has I've never seen it uh, lead to passivity. It leads to that quivering of the heart, that response, and then hopefully that expresses itself as some kind of action. Uh, and it, sometimes when we see things on the other side of the world that are just so completely, it, it's in the news every day, and, and there's nothing new under the sun. It's just, this happens forever. The same thing. The expressions of intense greed, intense hatred, intense ignorance, and you get the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. This is what human beings do. They, they're crazy. They also have the potential to be awakened and, and pure-hearted and pure-actioned and uh, all of that. So we have this range. This is how it is. We have to, first and foremost, accept this fact but it still just breaks your heart to see, knowing that, that uh, so many innocent people every day are either being displaced or they're being murdered or they're, and, or they're falling victim of some kind of, uh, even the measles, you know, the, the indirect effect of people not getting vaccinated is you get a proliferation of measles. It's, there's so many ways that suffering can happen in this world, and we can't just pretend it's not happening. So we all resonate with that. And then what do we do? What do we do when something seems so far beyond our own, our own reach? At least what I've, I t- try to do is I try to, if I look at the systemic causes of, of all suffering, and that's what, the, at least for me, that's what, what's beautiful about the, the Buddha's teaching. One of the things that's beautiful is it doesn't try to solve this problem or that problem. It looks at the root problem that the seed that all problems arise out of. The three poisons that, that function in our minds, the poisons of greed, of hatred, of ignorance. And then what we, what we try to do is help wherever we can, but try to root out those seeds of the world suffering in our own minds. The quote that I use so often here on Tuesday night, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world will continue to be the way it is. And if we want a peaceful world, a wise world, a compassionate world, we have to have peaceful, wise, compassionate people. It's not something that can be imposed or fought over. It has to start within the radical social action of each of us transforming our own hearts. And so hopefully each of us can just turn it into fire for our own practice and and fire for doing whatever we can, wherever we can do it, in our own neighborhood. But but it's not, the world may never be the way we want it to. So we have to accept that fact 
and still help wherever we can. Please, Kevin. Having peace and joy regardless of the conditions of your life? Well, I, can, I don't have to speak about it so much as just invite everyone here right now. We often, you know, I'll start and I could, I could say to you, imagine a world or imagine feeling fine wherever you are. Imagine uh, having ease in your body calm in your mind. Imagine being able to be praised and not getting excessively inflated, being blamed and maintaining balance and ease. And I can say, you can, so we can have all these ideas of what that is, but that's exactly what you experience in a moment of being mindfully present. For, so right now, don't imagine this, just sense what it's like to just be here in the room be in your embodied, feel your body. Have let your senses be open. Let your ears be open, your eyes, your nose, your tongue. Let it all open. And just for a moment, don't just notice what it's like after your last thought has passed and before the next one comes. So where you're not defined by the past or the future for a moment, and you're just here. Now, your life situation has not changed one bit, but I'll guarantee you that you feel a little more peace right now. So that peace is, that calm, that calm abiding, that is a natural state. There's no path to that, that you can get to somewhere. It surrounds you every instant. It's just that the, the, we ignore it, we miss it, we associate being happy or impervious to some other time and some other place. Associate being able to have joy in the midst of it. And it's really just these simple moments. I've got a, a little passage here. It's funny, it's relevant to your question about having joy in the, regardless of circumstances. It really talks about about realizing that right now. But it, it's in the context of suffering. Now, this is a, a book from Ajahn Sumedho, who was a wonderful monk, lifetime almost, you know, 60 years a monk and 50 years a monk. And, uh, and he's telling about his teacher, Ajahn Chah. He says, Ajahn Chah constantly pointed to the here and now. And it was through that continuous emphasis, in spite of a certain resistance to it and being caught up in my own views, that I began to get the point. I began to see what I was doing. I was creating suffering from just little things, from not getting my own way and not particularly liking the way other people did things, I could just sit and fume for days on end and create utter misery over something relatively minor, 
something that really didn't matter at all. But eventually I began to notice that I was creating this suffering by my own obsessions, opinions, pride, and conceit, or by feeling threatened or victimized by the system. It had been so easy to blame others, to say it was their fault, that they were doing it wrong, that they didn't respect me, or to blame the mosquitoes, the climate, the food, or anything. Yet Ajahn Chah never let me get away with any of it. And I experienced quite a transformation when I realized what I was doing. I realized it was me that was creating these perceptions and began to reflect, I'm the creator of my own suffering. And to notice that even if somebody was treating me badly or unfairly, and I had a justified case for blaming them, it was really my anger and resentment that was the suffering. It was my wanting to get even with them that was the problem, my wanting to tell them off, my feeling misunderstood, unloved, and unappreciated. It was actually me who was creating these thoughts and emotions. So what this reminds us of in these moments of being really present is that it's not ever our life situation. It's not ever exactly what's happening. It's the way that we relate to it. It's the stories we tell ourselves about it. It's the reactions. It is one of those poisons operating in our mind. Is there greed in our mind, wanting something that's not happening? Is there aversion in our mind, resisting, pushing away what's happening? And is there, is there personalizing going on in the mind, a kind of delusion, making it all about me? If these three are present, the, this simple reality becomes obscured. And so that's what we wake up to. We start to notice greed in the mind. We notice hatred in the mind. We notice our blaming and our demanding and our complaining and everything in our mind. But we stay here. And then even that becomes a reminder of, our, of the, the peace and calm and sufficiency and, and home that we can, it is available to us every moment. So it isn't, it's not just a hyperbole. It's your natural state. Please. So people who, people who thrive, I'm trying to get this. As a, human, as, a human animal, as a human animal, that we thrive on connection. Yeah, and touch and kindness and all. Yes. And so if you just, if somebody is in a situation, so I, I don't know if I totally, it doesn't resonate for me totally, so I'm wondering how you, how you um, reconcile some of these deeper Yes, what do, how do we reconcile these deep human needs and tendencies that we have to need contact, to need love, to need food, to need shelter, to need, need uh, community, etc.? These are all basic needs, fundamental needs. They are part of the, and the, when those needs are frustrated, there's, there's uh, an experience of, of difficulty that's painful. But even in the midst of that, we could take the basic pain of not getting what you want and not getting what you need, which is every human being experiences, and we can either turn that into excessive mental suffering 
or we can calmly, with full attention, embrace the situation we're in, feel what's lacking or what we need, go about trying to heal what needs to be healed, connect with what we need to connect with, but limit the amount of mental suffering that adds, that just compounds what's already a difficult situation. So this is not saying that we won't have difficulties in our life. The teachings are all about, the first truth is your life, if you are born, will have things that are hard to deal with. Definition of birth, leading cause of things that are hard to deal with. But what turns that that basic situation into real mental suffering and mental proliferation, complication, elaboration, is our, um, our chronic reaction to it of grasping and aversion, which is different than just the desire to make connection or the desire to, to get away from some un, unhealthy uh, situation. It's, it's the compounding suffering that, that gets created in our own minds. And that's workable. That's the good news. This is all good news. It's workable. doesn't mean you won't have stress. But you can sit in the middle of it. Every day, every single day, one of the constant... I see something that's off every day that's not right. From morning till night, there are countless things that cross my path that are not that are not um, easy to be with, that I have a hard time with, that are just not, uh, not it's, it's often translated in the teachings, the word dukkha, as a wheel out of round. Things are just off, one thing or another. The best vacation is off. The best, the best thing you have, the best person in your life, the best day is off. Every day, there's something a little off. That's the nature of our life. And so I will hear myself saying through the day, oh, there's dukkha, there's dukkha, there's dukkha, there's dukkha, there's dukkha. And being able to just see it for how it is, things that are off, just seeing it for how it is, there's something in me that just relaxes. And if I, if I thought, oh, the world shouldn't be that way, this should be a better day, or this should be a different day, or I should have a different body, I should have a different mind, it just adds to the burden, which is already challenging enough. Just by the fact that I woke up in the morning, there's something that's hard to bear about, about having to get out of bed, or eat, or make food, or work, or whatever it is, or drive in traffic. Any, anybody want to add to the list that's hard to bear? This is not a pessimistic view of life. It's just realistic. And we just try to keep a sense of humor and, and try to sit in the middle of it. And the effect of that is we settle back into a, a calm, uh, the eye of the hurricane. It's natural. Please. How do I apply the concept of loving without attachment to a real? Seems impossible to be able to love without attachment. It is not possible to love without without being um, without being uh, appropriately attached and bonded to the person that you're that you're in relationship with, like a mother is bonded to their child. It would not be appropriate and possible 
for a mother to have a good relationship with their child if they weren't bonded. So bonding and healthy attachment is just built into our nature. Because of mirror neurons, we resonate, we connect, and we, we, our hearts open and we care for that person who's, who, and we develop, just like a sangha, we develop a relationship of mutual dependence. So there, that's inherent in a relationship. So that, that kind of attachment often gets conflated with the attachment that is um, the experience of clinging, of holding, of tension, of, of uh, a kind of dependence, without you, I'll die. Without you being the way I want you to be, I won't be happy. All the ways that, that, the, that our relationships show up in what we sometimes mistakenly call love is really just clinging and attachment, a, a kind of attachment. Attachment in this way that I'm describing is called the near enemy of love. It disguises itself as love, but it's not really love. It's, it's wanting something. So attachment that's bonding doesn't really want anything. It's just connected. But attached love, you want something, you need something, you depend on it. Uh, it's, there's a clinging quality to it. So that's all I'd say. But anybody who's trying to have a relationship and not be, not be attached, that's just spiritual bypassing. Please. Last one. You have the last word of the night. I'd like to ask you about uh, commuting on the BART. Commuting on the BART. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to meditate. I recognize that. But there are many challenges. Um, you know, for instance, seeing all the people disconnected Yeah, all the challenges of being on BART. Hard to read, hard to see everybody disconnected. And, uh, and then, you know, there's all this noise, and so then sometimes I think, well, maybe I'll just put headphones in. Yeah. But that's not what I want to be doing. So, yeah, so much noise, he thinks something. I'm disconnected, too. Yes, and then he says, I don't want to be disconnected, too. So that's a, that's a practice for everyone. To That's a form of dukkha, things that are hard to bear, and... And ideally, just keep noticing all the things you're noticing. If you take an interest with kindness toward yourself and the situation, then you're, and, you, and you practice moment-to-moment attention, you're already benefiting by staying attentive. The people who you see as so-called disconnected, you can, you can hopefully... Is that just a view and opinion, or is it you actually feel the pain of their their pain, or are you just seeing your own ideas and opinions about them? I would say it's a mixture, but okay. thing, you know, no, there's no requirement that, that people out on the street should make eye contact, but there's a severe avoidance. Yeah, there's a severe avoidance, yeah. <laughs> so what I did, I, I talked about it a lot on Tuesday night. When I moved to the city, I saw people very disconnected, very uh, a severe avoidance because I thought, okay, I've moved to a big city. People just, uh, they're not very nice here. And the people used to make eye contact when I'd walk down the street of the place I used to live. And, uh, and it seemed really cold. So what I started to do just to deal with it myself is I started to wish each person, no matter how disconnected 
Um, I would send loving kindness to them. I'd say, may you be happy, may you be happy, I love you, I love you, I love you, may you be happy. And it, it completely transformed my experience because then I didn't feel as disconnected because I was joining with my community, even though I didn't get much response from other people. <laughs> Again, you can't depend on... on uh, if I make my well-being dependent on people smiling at me and being connected, I'll be happy when they do and unhappy when, I'm don't, when, when they don't. And that's not real happiness. The happiness of a Buddha is a happiness, a well-being that can withstand the joys and the sorrows. So we have to end it on that note. And, but before you get up, let's just consider any um, benefit, any fruit, any goodness, any merit, any, anything that was helpful about your practice tonight, being together. And let's just take all the blessings of our time together and our practice and anything that's a blessing in our lives and offer it freely as a blessing, as a wish to all beings everywhere and all the beings in such awful circumstances, beings in happy circumstances, beings who are who are victims in this world and even beings who are perpetrators offer all the blessings of our life and our practice to all beings everywhere with a deep wish that everyone can have more happiness and the causes of happiness growing in their lives that everyone can have less suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness that's without sorrow here and now and not overlook this vital point, and that all beings can grow in serenity, as just to reiterate, to be able to meet the joys and the sorrows without as much reactivity, which tends to compound our suffering. And may all beings be free of mental suffering, and may all beings live with ease as much as possible. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for your generosity. Thanks for your presence. Uh, see you in two weeks. Please remember, remember to if you'd like to read the bio again of the of Panyavati, who will be here next week, the Venerable Panyavati. Please check it out. Please come. Happy days, even when you're unhappy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.